Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Derek Williamson. On this edition, we'll feature unruly backpackers and Japanese space robots. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe. Glowing mind control parasites have their signals jammed. Toxoplasmosis gondii, the mind control parasite, uses a network that can be jammed. The parasite uses a chemical network to signal its brothers and sisters when it's time to move and when it's time to reproduce. Since reproduction requires being eaten by a cat, the signals on this network coordinate the parasite's control in the infected brain's reckless behaviour. Toxoplasmosis gondii is not just a common infection in mice, rats, cats and wildlife, but in humans as well. It makes humans just as fond of cats and prone to reckless and unsanitary behaviour as it does rodents. Luckily, most infected people live nowhere near cats big enough to eat them. Researchers at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis have found that the parasite uses the hormone abscisic acid to signal when it's time to be lunch. Abscisic acid is a common plant hormone that coordinates flowering and seed dormancy. They've found a weed killer stops the parasite making the hormone. Without the hormone, the parasites can't signal when to stop being dormant, break out of the infected cells, and start to reproduce. Low doses of the herbicide have prevented fatal infection of Toxoplasmosis gondii in mice. The herbicide had already been tested for toxicity on farm animals and is already in commercial production. They tested the herbicide by tagging test parasites with a firefly luciferase protein to make them glow. The malaria parasite is related to Toxoplasmosis gondii and uses the same hormonal signals for reproduction, so the same weed killer also stops malaria infections. The common ancestor of these parasites incorporated a cell from algae millions of years ago and was able to make use of the algae's genes. Cats are commonly infected with the parasite, Humans can become infected and controlled by the parasite by changing cat litter without rubber gloves or by drinking water contaminated with spores shed by cats. Cat lovers need to be extra careful about hygiene around their cats if they ever hope to have children. The parasite can cause congenital defects in the developing fetuses of pregnant women and sometimes cause spontaneous stillbirths. Humans also become infected by eating undercooked meat. Epidemiologists estimate that as many as one in every four humans is infected with Toxoplasmosis gondii. Infections usually don't show many symptoms of illness, only causing serious disease in patients with weakened immune systems. In some rare cases, infection in patients with healthy immune systems leads to serious IL central nervous system disease. Abscisic acid has many roles in plant biology, so there are many different weed killers that suppress it. Abscisic acid has many roles in plant biology, so there are many different weed killers that suppress it. And because the hormone is more common in plants, any drug that inhibits it is less likely to have side effects in people. 
This isn't a cure for the mind-bending parasites, but it may stop them from bursting out of their host cells and causing further damage. Magnetic medicines pretend to be brain chemicals. At Boston Children's Hospital, a new type of wireless nanotechnology medicine is being developed around tiny nanometer-sized magnetised beads. The beads are taken into the body as part of the drug, and then, when a magnetic field is applied, they act as if they were a natural brain chemical and move around, performing chemical reactions. In this way, the drugs can pretend to be chemicals that they're not. The beads bind to the receptors on the surface of the cell and then clump together when they're attracted by the magnetic field. The clumping triggers a signal from the receptor, fooling the cell into signalling something like a muscle contraction or hormone release. This is the first time magnets have been used to trigger cellular signalling that would normally require hormones or brain chemicals. The team's first demonstration was with mast cells from the immune system. The beads bound to the receptors, and when the magnetic field was switched on, the signal stimulated an influx of calcium into the cell. Calcium is the main chemical used by the nervous system for signalling, for muscles in contracting, and in other cells for secretion of hormones. The magnetic field doesn't have any effect without the beads, and the beads don't act until the magnetic switch is pulled. The researchers say that the beads are 30 nanometers wide, and that a nanometer is to a metre what a blueberry is to the size of the earth. The beads were coated with antigens to bind with antibodies that coat the receptors on the cells. This mimics the way that antibodies bind to antigens in the immune system. Being able to switch a nanomagnetic drug on and off instantaneously is a huge improvement on treatments that can take from minutes to hours and can stay in the body after the treatment. The beads stop their activity as soon as the magnetic field switches off. Don Ingber plans a new kind of pacemaker where the nanobeads are injected into the heart and then controlled by magnetic devices on the skin instead of through a wired surgical implant. He also foresees an insulin-making implant that could be turned on and off with a switch instead of injecting a drug. In the future, the nanomagnetic beads could communicate with instruments and be controlled by a computer to switch different functions on and off as indicated by information from the body or the environment. Diabetics could get insulin made in their body when their blood sugar indicates it's necessary. Or soldiers could get antitoxins when a poison is detected in their blood. The study was funded at the Boston Children's Hospital by the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency. And now, Lindsay Gray with this season's first Coel, as sung by unwelcome travellers flying in from Papua New Guinea. You're lying in bed. It's four in the morning. You should be soundly sleeping, dreaming up your next leisurely summertime recreation. But instead, your sleepy ears are being buffeted repetitively, unceasingly by the haunting call of a male common Coel. Ah, it's summertime. I've often wondered why we don't have the pleasure of receiving this rude dawn awakening all year round. I've wondered, as Burl himself must have, where do you come from and where do you go, common Coel? 
Well, it turns out having made even an ever-so-subtle reference to a folky number such as Cotton-Eyed Joe may in fact be highly offensive to a common coel. Coels are really much more likely to be metalheads. Coels are cuckoos, and cuckoos are amazing. They're brood parasites. After mating, mother coels go out in search of foster parents. Round southern Australia, for example in Sydney, the most easily beguiled and most devoted foster parents turn out to be red wattle birds. There's even a theory that female cuckoo's plumage resembles that of birds of prey. I challenge you to all go now and grab your bird book and compare the plumage of a female coel against a peregrine falcon. And I tell you what, those two birds could have been separated at birth. Of course, this feather deception is to allow the mum coel to easily go around and lay eggs in other birds' nests. A wattle bird's hardly going to stick around and take the time to differentiate between a coel and a massive hungry falcon. So falcon mimic, Mrs. Coel will lay her big egg amongst the cute little ones of a wattle bird, and then she's probably going to go and try and find another male straight away for a second bout. And as we all know too well, this is hardly going to be a sonic challenge for her. All up and down the coast, from southern Queensland to Nowra, male coels will be calling to lovely lady coels from within their territories. Now, why are coels so very loud, I can just hear you ask? Well, it turns out that males can guard territories of up to seven 25 hectares. And I guess with a territory that big, you're going to need a pretty loud voice to let all the surrounding girls know that you are, in fact, the man. And of course, better quality male coels are also likely to have louder voices and bigger territories to advertise. And for lady coels, a big boy's big territory means lots of luckless wattlebird nests are likely to be within that territory. We humans, thankfully, won't be awoken by coels for very much longer. Because come late February, adult coels are going to migrate north for the winter together. And while that all sounds terribly appealing and romantic, don't forget the slightly disturbing domestic situation they have left behind for the foster carers. While adult coels swan around enjoying the fruits and berries in the rainforests of equatorial Asia back here in Sydney, the unfortunate wattlebirds are struggling to provide enough protein and carbohydrate-rich food for their rapidly growing parasitic child, which by now has evicted the wattlebird's real chicks from the nest and in four short weeks has grown over twice as large as its foster parents. One week ago, I had the quiet satisfaction of sighting a pair of wattlebirds dive-bombing the bejesus and generally giving a pretty hard time to a fledgling coel. I reckon maybe the wattlebirds had wised up a bit and were telling their little slave labour of love to move the heck out of home. Oh, the poor little coel. It had never been loved by its biological mum and dad, and now it's being booted out of home by its embittered and embattled foster parents. What's a fledgling coel to do? Where's a fledgling coel to go? Well, this baby sure don't want to stick around in stinky Sydney. Somewhere deep inside, something is stirring. The days are getting shorter, the nights are getting colder, and this little baby coel could sure go some equatorial Asian rainforest fruits and berries. Our young coel is going to undertake a mammoth migratory flight for the very first time, from southeastern Australia all the way to Papua New Guinea or perhaps even Indonesia. It's a real shame that mum and dad coel didn't stick around for a bit longer though. I mean, how's this naive little coel going to navigate its way north with no memory of the journey and no social guidance? Well, lucky for our baby, like all migratory birds, it's laden with sensory tools which it can utilise to expertly navigate its way. Birds have fabulous eyesight. They have an extra set of cones on their retina that mammals don't have, and this allows them to see UV light. They can also detect the direction that a light source is coming from, and they can even see polarised light. 
This means that birds can accurately locate the position of the sun in the sky, even when it's obscured or when it's overcast. Combine this awesome eyesight with their super accurate internal biological clock and voila, you have an excellent bird sun compass. Now this is pretty good for the coel during the day, but what if he wants to fly north at night time? Well, no worries. All the coel need do is set a direction heading before the sun goes down and then calibrate this bearing with the position of the stars in the sky. As with the sun compass, as the stars move across the sky, the coel can correct for change in the star's position over time via its internal biological clock. It will then compensate as time progresses by adjusting its heading by the appropriate number of degrees, either left or right. But hang on a second, these precise navigational aids are all well and good, but how does a coel know which way is north initially? How can it possibly calibrate its sun and star compass for north in the first place? Well, this is where the heavy metal business comes in. It turns out that migratory birds can perceive the Earth's magnetic field, and it's thought that this may be due to the presence of millions of magnetite crystals in the bird's head, wedged in between the skull and the tissues surrounding the brain, and there are just enough of these crystals for the head of the bird to be permanently magnetic. It's thought that they can perceive the location of the Earth's magnetic north pole, and once the north bearing is set, the bird can use its other compasses to maintain the correct direction over great distances. Now the return trip for our coel is going to be much easier. This time they've viewed the topography and the landmarks along the route, so they can most certainly use these physical cues when they head south for us next year. Roads, rivers, the coastline, these are all used by migrating birds. So don't be irritated by a common coel next summer time. When it wakes you up at four, take a moment to marvel at their falcon mimicking plumage, their no-fuss mothering and their magnetised brains. Thanks, Lindsay Gray, for that in-depth guide to the world of chick magnets. Secondly, Japanese robot spaceships on the moon and begun transmitting new images back to Earth. Ian Wolfe has taken a look. The Japanese robot spaceship Kaguya has reached orbit around the moon and has started its program of surveillance. The Japanese Space Exploration Agency, JAXA, is boasting that the Kaguya robot spaceship is the biggest mission to the moon since NASA landed the Apollo ships 35 years ago. Kaguya consists of the main orbiter and two small satellites, one to relay back to Earth and a second for very long baseline radio interferometry. Very long baseline interferometry is a trick for using several radio telescopes to act together as one giant radio telescope to view very distant objects. The main satellite will be placed into an orbit that goes over the poles of the Moon at a height of 100 kilometres above the surface.
JAXA plans to operate Kaguya for just a year. The mission objectives are to understand the Moon's origin and evolution, and to survey it for future use. They also aim to study the solar wind and the impact of the Sun on the Earth and the Moon. Kaguya will analyse the Moon for the location of many minerals, but radioactive minerals in particular. After all, they come with a built-in clock. The location and amount of radioactive minerals will tell them something about the history of the Moon and the way the lunar landscape has developed over hundreds of millions of years. The locations of minerals and the shape of the Moon's landscape will reveal where the best spots are to set up a base camp for future exploration, and perhaps for mining and manufacturing plants to support the base camp. The probe's radio telescopes will be able to listen to cosmic radio emissions without interference from signals broadcast from Earth. Kaguya is looking back at the Earth, as well as looking at the Moon. The auroras at the north and south poles of the Earth are much better studied from space. The auroras are spectacular glowing lights in the sky, caused by the interaction of the solar wind with the Earth's atmosphere as the solar wind is attracted to the magnetic poles. Kaguya was selected as the nickname for the Senelological Engineering Explorer, Selene, from amongst the 11,500 applications received and over 2,000 different suggested nicknames. Kaguya originates from Princess Kaguya, in the tale of the bamboo cutter. The story goes that one day, an old bamboo cutter found a glowing bamboo plant and cut it open to find a thumb-sized baby girl. She grew up into a beautiful woman with long golden blonde hair. Many men proposed to marry her, but Princess Kaguya asked to perform impossible tasks to prove their love and rejected their marriage proposals. When even the emperor wanted her to marry him, she finally admitted that she is not of this world and needed to be with her people on the moon. On the night of a harmless moon, Princess Kaguya returned to the capital city of the moon with people who appear from the sky. This story is the basis of several live and animated movies, anime TV series, and computer games. Kaguya is the second probe that Japan has sent to the moon. The first was Hagamoro in 1990. Japan plans a manned landing by 2020, like everyone else, and perhaps a manned lunar base just 10 years later. It's getting crowded up there. The People's Republic of China has begun the Chang'e Orbiter Program for exploring the moon, and is officially investigating the prospect of lunar mining. They're looking for the isotope helium-3 for use as a nuclear fusion energy source on Earth. Helium-3 is different to ordinary helium because it has one neutron instead of two. As a result, it can fuse with deuterium to make hydrogen-3, or tritium, and a high-energy proton. The head of the Chinese Lunar Exploration Program states that each year, three space shuttle missions could bring enough fuel from the moon for all human beings across the world. China launched the Chang'e-1 robot lunar orbiter in October 2007 and plan a manned mission for 2020. Chang'e, like Kaguya, will be looking for many different exploitable minerals. India will be launching its own lunar robot probe, Chandrayaan, by April 2008 and also plan to land a man on the moon in 2020. The NASA Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter will join the party by the end of 2008. The Russian Lunar Glob is planned to launch in 2009. They're all repeating NASA's original journey to the moon. First, an orbiting robot probe, then a robot lander, next, the second human landing, and finally the step nobody has taken yet, a regularly manned base. Through the Planetary Society, Thousands of people have had their names taken aboard Kaguya to the moon. 
The Planetary Society is the largest and most influential public space organisation group on Earth. The Planetary Society was founded in 1980 by Carl Sagan, Bruce Murray and Louis Friedman to inspire and involve the world's public in space exploration through advocacy, projects and education. They're dedicated to exploring the solar system and seeking life beyond Earth. The Planetary Society is a non-governmental and non-profit and is funded by the support of its members. With so many nations, and perhaps private groups, focused on going to the moon, the Planetary Society has proposed an international lunar decade to help coordinate these different efforts and to share the results with the world. The International Lunar Decade would have commenced in 2007 with the launches of Japan's Kaguya mission and China's Chang'e. It would end in 10 years' time, or when humans return to the moon, whichever happens first. The International Lunar Decade has now been endorsed by the International Lunar Exploration Working Group and the International Council of Scientific Union's Committee on Space Research. The Society plans to present it to the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. The lunar conspiracy theorists are on the edge of their seats. For the first time since the Apollo program, they'll be able to see photographs of the moon that are out of the control of NASA. For decades, the fringe groups have been unhappy with the way NASA public relations have altered photographs for magazines or for web browsing. They suspect that the most interesting bits have been edited out. NASA has a project to clean up the old Apollo photographs and scan them all at high resolution in order to make them available to the public on a website in 2010. By an amazing coincidence, the raw pictures from the Japanese Kaguya probe will only be made available on the internet in 2010. With competing pictures from this swarm of space robots around the moon, there should be enough uncensored pictures of the moon to satisfy everybody about what is or isn't up there. The only question left will be what to do about it.
You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2, the number 2, ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Guinea pigs used to be the size of rhinos. Raccoons were the size and ferocity of bears. Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, yeah, deal with that. The moon is moving away from the earth by four centimetres a year. And when it's gone, we are all well and truly buggered. Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. Blue whales are bloody massive, the tongues weigh as much as an elephant. Its heart is the size of a car and some of its blood vessels are so wide that you could swim down them. Oh, it's a fact, so you deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. Your average pillow of about six years old is made up from one-tenth of skin, living mites, dead mites and mite dung. Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, you deal with that. It's a fact, deal with that. Ducks, quacks don't echo. Fact. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program, Lindsay Gray and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe. In the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Derek Williamson. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Why do we all want to be up there? Because we're people, members of the human race. We thirst for knowledge, we, we want to know, and we do know that new frontiers and discoveries are waiting for new pioneers and scientists away up there. Outer space is the place where we'll trace.
Away.